Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I want to thank all of my listeners who come back again and again and again to listen to the podcast and support our program. And joining me today from New Mexico is Stephen Kotler. And Stephen is a New York Times bestselling author, and I've interviewed him before for several books, one of them, Abundance, the other one, The Rise of Superman, and the other one, Bold. Good day to you, Stephen. How are you? Hey, Greg. It's good to be with you again. Uh, and first good. of all, shout out. Big thanks for, you know, this is, this is round four, and I just got to thank you for all the support along the way. Oh, uh, well, I, I appreciate it. I mean, I don't know of anybody who pumps out books as fast as you do. And so, you know, you're just such a prolific writer. And as we were talking prior to getting on this podcast for my listeners, this has been a this particular book, Tomorrowland, um, our journey from science fiction to science fact, is truly a different book uh, for Stephen. It is a unique uh, way in which he's written. I really enjoyed it. And Stephen, I'm going to let my listeners know for the first time, if anyone's been on, hasn't heard a podcast from Stephen. Stephen is a New York Times bestselling author an award-winning journalist, and the co-founder and director and research of the Flow Genome Project. His books include Bold, The Rise of Superman, Abundance, A Small Fury Prayer, West of Jesus, and The Angle Quickest for Flight. His work has been translated in over 40 languages and appeared in over 80 publications, um, including the New York Times, Atlantic, Wired, Forbes, and Time. He also writes for Far Frontiers, a blog about the intersection of science and culture for Forbes.com. Stephen lives in northern New Mexico with his wife and the two dogs. Don't forget them. When you go to his website, you'll see he's out there running around the hills with the dogs. Well, Stephen, you really kind of outdid yourself here with all these essays kind of combined together into this great book. I don't really want to call it a novel, but... You mentioned in the book that this is science fiction is becoming science fact, and I love the statement. You start your book off with this, these advancements in bionics for the human body parts. I mean, you tell this long story at the beginning, which I think was great. Um, what really, when you dug into that and you see kind of how we've advanced in putting bionic parts in people, what do you foresee in the future in this particular area? It's a really – there's a reason I sort of start the book there, right? The, bu- the, the book is, yes, it's about the transformation of science fiction into science fact. And for sure, you know, my generation is a kid growing up with a $6 million man. Like bionics was one of those technologies that was, you know, sci-fi technologies that was in my face from go. So very much of interest. But really, the, I mean, one of the main focuses on the book is – the kind of massively disruptive impact these technologies are having on culture. And bionics is kind of a great example. So in Tomorrowland, we meet right Major David Roselle, who's literally the world's first bionic soldier. And he's got a fully functional bionic ankle made by a company called iWalk. And soldiers right now are wearing these ankles in combat. But that's just the beginning, right? That was an, a, a look four years ago, right? Right now, today, 50% of the human body can actually be replaced with bionics. Mm -hmm. So we've gotten to the point that we've got, you know, 
dad's 3D printing bionic arms for kids. You can custom bionics is a London-based company that makes a 3D printable bionic arm for less than a thousand dollars, right? We've also got mind-brain interfaces coming online so paraplegics and quadriplegics can move their real-life bionic limbs simply by thinking about them. But the, the, the reason I kind of start with bionics is what's coming, immediately coming, right? Because everything I'm sort of giving you an example of is about replacement parts. And they're amazing replacement parts. Um, I watched Major David Rizal, uh literally like kind of run across four lanes of busy traffic. We were in conversation. He wasn't thinking. and we, He ran across a busy street in the winter on his bionic limb. Three other people, we, the, the people who didn't have bionic limbs, we all hung back. We were like, okay, this is too crazy. He just, like, danced across four lanes of freeway. It was like watching, you know, a Walter Payton run, but the guy <laughs> was wearing a bionic limb, right? Wow. So, yeah, I mean, already the level of advancement is crazy, but what's coming is strap-on bionics for normal people, right? Right now, the worst part of getting old, according to kind of almost every study you look at, is accelerated decrepitude, right? We lose right. control of our limbs, right? Lack of mobility is the number one complaint. It's why people primarily enter nursing homes early. It's a big issue. This year, 2016, we've got strap-on exoskeletons, so bionic braces that can be put on ankles and knees, hips are coming, um, arm, elbows and shoulders are coming as well. So what these things, they're, they're not like just support braces. They actually put energy back into the system. So they're restoring vitality, right? Now, why is this such a big deal at a cultural level? Because evolution, right? I mean, since the, the lineage began, we have lost control of our bodies as we've gotten older. It's kind of hardwired into the human experience at a really deep level. And suddenly, technology is kind of impacting us at that level. So the, the point I make, you know, at, towards the end of the story is, you know, we're, we're building bionic limbs, but we're going to end up with bionic brains as well. And I don't mean augmented brains, though that's coming. I mean this, you know, not losing control of your body as you get older is going to start reshaping a lot of things. It's going to, you know, even something as simple as business. If you think about the fact that people start retiring at 65, you know, one of the reasons is their body is slowing down. Well, we've got, you know, life extension medicine pushing back, you know, our lives longer and longer. And with exoskeletons, we're going to be much more more mobile, and that means, you know, people aren't going to be retiring until much, much, much later. So you've got kind of, you know, an impact at a very practical business level in culture, and then you've got an impact at like kind of a deeply fundamental, what does it mean to be human level? It's all being driven, you know, by a sci-fi technology. Well, what, what was interesting you talk about in the book is this mind-uploading chip. And I just did an interview uh, with Greg O'Brien, the guy that wrote a book called On Pluto, because he's got onset um, Alzheimer's. And he writes it as a journalist because he's been a journalist. So from an on, from an uh, telling you like, hey, it's like you're in the basement and somebody turns out the lights when you're doing the laundry, right? And so I, I come to this part in your book that's it's talking about mind uploading a chip that's implanted in the brains that records everything. What benefits do you see for this technology? And what are the morality issues? I mean, here I just interviewed this guy who's in essence losing his mind one sliver at a time, right? Literally, that's what he says. Like somebody taking a razor blade, just cutting off a little piece of your mind at a time. Do you see ultimately these mind implant chips where we potentially could, you know, impact uh, this advancement of Alzheimer's? 
So it's worth pointing out that, that mind uploading is probably the farthest out technology that I look at in the book. First, yeah, it, right? it was, so it's pretty I, far-fetched. I, but it's I mean, very, <laughs> well, but, but it's pretty far-fetched, but the crazy part, right? And my, it's, by the way, this is an old science fiction idea, been around for a while, Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you know, based on all the sci-fi movies have have that in it, right? Every so, right, there's some version of this in there. <laughs> the, what caught my attention, and when I first started looking at this technology, was uh, the New York Times Sunday Magazine hired me in like 2000. They wanted to know what technologies people were working on that were going to be so crazy by 2010. And it turns out there was there was a very prominent team in England that was actually working on this, and it sounded totally crazy. And then I started looking at it, and you start to realize that now they had a very crude version of this. Their idea was if they could record the inputs of all the senses, that information alone filtered through a normal brain would you know, then reproduce a facsimile of a person's life. That was their idea. It's a very kind of scaled-down version of this. But the crazy part about it is it's, it's, mo- it's essentially a two-part system, right? You need, you, know, you need something that can record sensory inputs, and then you need a playback device. And of the, the recording devices, which sound all crazy, they were already all in place, right? Nobody had figured out how to integrate them, which is what they were working on themselves. But playback devices are essentially virtual reality devices, right? So maybe not the version of Oculus that pay, Facebook paid a billion dollars for, but what the system looks like after they put another billion into it, right? Mm-hmm. But like really soon, that will be here. So the, so the interesting thing is their vision, their very crude vision, which I don't think gets you all the way to mind uploading, which is literally storing yourself on silicon, Correct. right, and preserving yourself immortal. But their, their version, you know, they, they thought it might be possible by 2025 and just kind of based on, on the developmental curves and the fact that biotechnology is now kind of doubling in power every four months, moving at five times the speed of Moore's Law. It, you go by, well, by 2025, something like this will be possible. Ray Kurzweil has famously pegged the point that this becomes possible at 2045. I think, by the way, they're both wrong. It's probably much farther out. But the point is this. If you think about the amount, you said the moral stuff, right? Right now, all of the world's major faiths use the threat of the hereafter, right, what's coming next, as a way to shape and steer behavior in this life. And that's a very old and ancient force. So what happens to theological morality in the face of technological immortality? (laughs) Because we're looking at that, right? That's coming in. And to put it on a, you know, on a much more practical level, I'm a huge fan of of the sci-fi writer Richard K. Morgan, who I think is one of the kind of heirs to the William Gibson cyberpunk throne and really one of the darkest guys out there. And he, you know, he sees a future where this is possible, where, you know, soldiers literally get disposable bodies, right? You train up a soldier, and if his body gets killed, you you re-upload his brain and put him in a new soldier. And, like, his version of the future, which is obviously, like, 400 years out, but you look at this, where this technology goes, and morally it goes to some pretty bankrupt, scary places. Right. Um, Now, mind you, the people who were developing it, right, just like television, right, when they, they developed television for educational purposes. That's what they thought it was going to be. And, you know, the inventor of television, you know, said, you know, years later, he said, I had no idea it would be used for all this crap. Um, And the mind uploading, they wanted to preserve kind of 
the thought pattern, the thinking of true geniuses, right? They wanted to preserve the law. So it'd be one thing, you know, we all know Richard Feynman, the physicist, was famous for these huge intuitive leaps, and nobody knew how he did it, right? His pattern recognition system was astounding. He'd make these giant leaps. But if you could get inside and live his experience, right, play back his life and, you know, experience that, you might, it, you know, it could cause a massive amplification and creativity. It's sort of, you know, mind uploading was developed as an educational technology, but God, you know, God knows where it's going to be used. It could if you can recreate the experience somewhere. I think it's it, the the whole concept is obviously got application. The question is, is where are you applying it? Now, you 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 talk about this kind of in your chapter on the biology of spirituality, and you describe your personal out of body experience when you go skydiving. Now, I've gone skydiving can't say that I had the same experience that you did, but speak with us about, you know, obviously the intersection between your work and spirituality comes in when people start to write about out-of-body and near-death experiences from a scientific viewpoint. Um, where, I mean, because this is where this gets a little wobbly, right? This is where this takes on a little bit more of the etherical. Um, well, talk I, with I, us about that. To me, you know, one of the great puzzles has always been spiritual experience because, for example, out-of-body experiences, near-death experience, out-of-body experience is a great example. This sounds like this crazy, wild, weird experience, which it is, right? But it turns out when Gallup does a, did a survey, they found that like 10% of the population has had an out-of-body experience. Mm-hmm. So it's a very common, very weird experience, right? Now, up till the early 1990s, if you went to a shrink and said, hey, you know, Doc, I, I had this out-of-body experience, I left my body, I became one with everything, you were going to a padded cell. You were going to be locked up, right? That was, you were crazy. That, we, that was how we treated that at a, at a, at a scientific level. Um, you know, paranormal is the word scientists use for this stuff, and it's beyond the you know, confines of normal experience. But what started happening in, 19, you know, in the 90s is technology sort of caught up with spirituality and we started being able to look under the hood of these experiences and a lot of scientists looked and over the past kind of 20 years we have solved or decoded a you know an inordinate number of spiritual experiences out of body experiences speaking in tongues cosmic unity <laughs> even the core of my own work at, at the flow genome project flow right for the first flow science goes back almost 150 years but for the first 50 years of it people thought they were looking at spiritual experiences people thought flow was a mystical experience mm-hmm. and it wasn't until the 50s when abraham maslow discovered the state in a huge study group packed with atheists that anybody started to think otherwise mm-hmm. right but we've now started to decode all these states now let's be clear None of this science answers the greater, you know, questions, right? Like, is there a God? Well, we have no idea, right? All it means is that these experiences we used to think were nonsensical, were lunatic, are now understood as this product of standard biology. It seems we are all hardwired for these experiences. And, you know, as I talk about in the book, what's happening because of that, right, the science always creeps out of the lab and into the marketplace. And so... You know, we discovered, for example, that right temporal lobe epilepsy 
which is hyperactivity in the right temporal lobe, produces all kinds of spiritual experiences. Wilder Penfield discovered this back in the 1950s, auditory visual hallucinations, out-of-body experiences, near-death experience, all that stuff. Over the years, we've gotten a better and better picture of why this happens, understanding the functionality of the right temporal lobe. We've also started building technologies that do the same thing. So Michael Persinger at Laurentian University has built the so-called God helmet, right? 80, uh, over 1,000 people have worn the device, and 80% of them, over 80%, have an experience of a sense presence, a feeling of like an angel or an other or something being in the room with them, mm. right? So, and... The crazy thing, and that as Zane, and that's here today, right now, right? Like, so we know that you kind of like there's biology beneath there, spirituality, and technology can be used to stimulate that biology. But what's really crazy is Persinger is developing a version of the God helmet for virtual reality, mm. possibly to be incorporated in a video game. So you got to stop and go well. In the last census, kind of 80 million Americans declared themselves spiritual but not religious, right? Which means they've rejected the hand-me-down traditions and are instead seeking some sort of direct proof, right? Access to the numinous. Well, it turns out access to the numinous may soon be available via video game. Hmm. Well, it is. It, again, you, when you look at these video games and you look at Holograph and you look at the things that are actually going on, it is the speed of it, and that's what I want to talk about next. Is is crazy, um, you know? The fact that we can put on these glasses and somebody can speak with us and create an experience through these glasses and make us reach out for certain objects. I mean, it's just it's phenomenal. You speak about the speed at which the human species is evolving. You state that we've stepped on the gas of a natural selection and turbo boosted evolution, and we're now speeding toward an end of an era. You call it the heir of Homo sapiens. That's a pretty bold statement. Um, well, but, it's what, also, but, it, but, but, but the it's question is, just... is what's next, right? What I mean, I know we're putting on all these bionic parts. We could become mechanical. We've talked about robotics before in some of your other books. The question is, is what what are you seeing as this species is evolving so damn fast? Well, which two, we are. Two. There's two things going on, right? And, and the first is you got to um, – this is not my statement, right? I start with you know, the work of Robert Fogel, who is a Nobel Prize winning economist who in one of his studies started to notice over the past 200 years that really fundamental qualities like body size and bone density and – Age, longevity, things like things, ev- things that are only shaped by evolution have all massively accelerated, right? Mm-hmm. And lifespan is, is the one that everybody points to, right? We've quadrupled our lifespan or doubled our lifespan in 200 years. It's been the same for, you know, 100,000 years, and we've doubled it in, in 200 years. And, um, you know, obviously technology, is, you know, and, and, and it's not even super fancy technology like bionics. It's in the case of longevity, some of it is, you know, our medicine has gotten really, really good. Some of it is sanitation has become global, right? Some of it is is these really kind of simple health and sanitation fixes and things like that, quality of life fixes that, that have made huge, huge differences. But we are accelerating evolution. Mm-hmm. Now, as a lot of people have also pointed out, and I'm, you know, Juan Enrique, uh, Ramez Nam, Andrew Hessel, I'm just, you know, a few names, um, we are also starting to take control of that evolution genetically, 
right? And and you see this in, you know, IVF already, right? We're already screening for tons and tons and tons of diseases that, you know, 20 years ago we wouldn't have been screening for. So where does it go is an interesting question because the normal opinion is, okay, we're taking it, we've sped up evolution, we're off the tracks, we're going to fracture kind of homo sapiens, and, and we're clearly, this, you know, the sci-fi stuff says we're heading for Gattaca land, right? Where we're just, everything, perfect designer babies, you know, it's, you know, Aryan, Aryan Nation 2.0. And it's frightening. But it's not going to be that way at all, first right. of all, because right. species are fracturing in little pockets. And even, you know, if you take control of uh, evolution, Andrew Hessel points this out. He's a synthetic biologist, and I, I talked to him in the article. He says, look, people are endlessly creative. And even if they start controlling, you know, designer babies to the nth degree, you know, your designer baby, my perfect baby, and your perfect baby are going to be pretty different, and we're friends. Imagine what, like, your perfect baby and a guy living in Mongolia is going to want. Mm-hmm. Very different, right? Mm-hmm. So we're not going in any one direction. We're going, it's going it's yeah. to be endlessly creative, but you don't have to do this for very long until, if you want the technical term of species, right, if you, it, once, once you're past the point that they can breed together, Right, but the the point I'm looking at is, for example, in a small furry prayer, which is my a book I wrote about the relationship between humans and animals. One of the things that we know is when we started cohabitating with wolves, right? Humans cohabitated with wolves for the numbers vary; it's somewhere between forty thousand years and all the way up to one hundred fifty thousand years. People argue how long it's been going on, but we cohabitated with wolves. And one of the things that we know is that if you look at chimps, right, you can see human traits like long-term planning and intelligence. That's all there. But what you, they don't do is they don't have huge extensive social networks, so they're not very empathetic. They're not very cooperative. There's none of those kind of larger social things. Those things were all taught to us by dogs. So our empathy, a lot of our morality, our taking care of our young and our old, of feeding the weak, all that stuff doesn't show up in chimps. Social intelligence is not prevalent in our primate history. It came in from dogs. It came in because we started cohabitating and co-evolving with dogs, right? This is what happens, right, when you start co-evolving with something that's very, very powerful, that's very, very different than what you are. On a certain level, we are now co-evolving with our technology. And, you know, if just teaming up with dogs, if you think about the fact that almost everything we think about with our, like, celebrated humanity, right, our caring for the weak, our empathy, all that stuff, well, we, we, we learn that from dogs. That actually has nothing to do with our primate lineage. It's everything that our friends, the dogs, taught us, right? <laughs> now, great. Imagine, imagine what happens when you replace dogs with, like, the most powerful technology the world's ever seen. Of course it's going to start pushing on us and bringing major and major changes. And, you know, the idea uh, that we're going to look anything similar, is to, you know, it, it just doesn't seem possible because of, of the speed at which things are going. And, you know, a really small, tiny example of this, Silicon Valley is one place in the world where there's a very high number of people, fully functioning folks with Asperger's and autism. Yeah, oh, of course. Right? I mean, they're some Savant, of the most intelligent Savant-like, people, you know. Right, absolutely. Yeah, and, exactly. and so up till recently... That was a disadvantage as far as socially, as far as procreating, right? Um, but not anymore. People with Asperger's and autism are marrying one another and they're having kids. And it doesn't – how long until – how many generations out, right, until that's a slightly different 
fully functional species, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's a big, it's a big switch, and it's happening for the very first time, right? We're seeing a lot of little examples like that being driven by all kinds of different things, and because everything's accelerating so much, this crazy idea, oh, my God, we're going to fracture the species, doesn't seem so implausible. The other thing you've got to remember is, for most of history, there were multiple hominid species on Earth, right? We happen to be living this really weird epoch where Homo sapiens won, right? We're the dominant lineage, and there's none, none else. But that's really actually fairly rare. It doesn't happen all that often. And historically, there's nothing that says it shouldn't, you know, we, we should stay that way for all that long. Well, you, you um, actually, in one of your essays here, um, one of the things from a standpoint of bionics is obviously does with works working with the eyes. You know, and so many blind people trying to regain ven- uh, vision, the cochlear implant for hearing. But in this case, this William Dubell, the man who invented this artificial vision brain implants. You know, you got this kid from Canada with the one eye that goes out. You talk about puts it in there. What I mean, really. Um, it, I didn't know this stuff was going on, but obviously you make it very apparent in the book. Well, you've you got you know, to hear the whole story. Okay. So, okay. So I was working for Wired, and I was really interested in bionic eyes, right? It was another yeah. sci-fi technology. Yeah, exactly. So I spent a year doing artificial vision research. I hung out at USC, University of Utah, East Coast, places where, like, the most cutting-edge academic stuff was going on. And I was all set to start writing my story. And nothing was really going on. That was the point. We were early days still. And we get this postcard. My editor at Wired gets this postcard. And it essentially says, hey, my name is William Devell. I've just created the world's first artificial vision implant. I'm going to install it. Come check it out. And, like, you know, nothing in my research said this is possible at all. Like, it was just, like, and no, William Devell, when you looked into him, he had been a vision researcher back in the 50s. He was a spare parts inventor, like, done all kinds of really, really kind of cool pacemakers and things along those lines. Um, but uh, he was sort of a maverick inventor, very outside the mainstream. And this was a really weird postcard. But, like, due diligence is due diligence. I got on a plane. Mm-hmm. And when I landed, I met a blind man named Jens. I mean, he was completely blind. He'd been blind for 21 years. And three days later, after this thing was turned on, he could see well enough to drive a car around a parking lot. Yeah, it was just a crazy story. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was, you know, the, the craziest part of that story, and if you actually want to know where the book comes from, the book comes from a moment in that story. So when we were in the room, right, they're turning on, they've installed the vision implant, the surgery's been done, and they're tuning him up. They're bringing him up to speed like one phosphine at a time, one point of light at a time. And as he, like, in the countdown towards, like, turning this thing on, like, in literally in the last 30 seconds, I realize I'm sitting across the table from this guy. And this thing is going to get turned on, and he's going to see me. And I'm a reporter. I'm not supposed to be in the story, and I'm specifically not supposed to put myself into the middle of history. And so I get up, and I try to slide to my left to get – so he's looking at the inventor, I think, is what I was trying to do. But the guy's blind. He spent his entire life tracking motion through sound. So, of course, I slide back my chair and take two steps to the left. He hears it, tracks, you know, tracks my motion, and the thing gets turned on. And when the world's first artificial vision implant is turned on, I was the first thing that was seen. 
And, wow. Wow. you know, as weird as that was, right, the, the thing that started to dawn on me after a while is it, it worked metaphorically, right? No, it didn't matter how fast I moved, how much I tried to duck, whatever I tried to do, I couldn't get out of the way of the future. And I think that's kind of how it is for all of us. Mm-hmm. And that, was that, that sort of became my driving metaphor. I started out in, interested in those moments sci-fi, was becoming sci-fact, and I you know, ended up starting to realize that those moments are coming for us and are going to fundamentally alter everything in a way that you know, we're not ready for because we yeah. don't anticipate the, shape, the, the depth of the change. We're used to things hitting at higher and higher levels. We're not used to things hitting like the scale of like fundamental what does it mean to be human questions, but that's what we're starting to impact. Well, let's talk about some of the things that we as a species have done that have impacted our environment and our world, the world in which we live, uh, plants and our species. And you have a chapter in the book where you speak about the Everglades dying. Nearly 4 million acres have been swallowed up by the sprawl and sugarcane. And I want you to talk to the listeners about the ever uh, the efforts that are going on because I had no idea myself to yeah, revive the Everglades in what you call a terraforming. Um, so speak with us about it because I I mean I knew a little bit about the Everglade issue, but not nearly. You made me quite aware of of uh, you know what looks to, could be a potential disaster, but now will probably not be. So go ahead. So it's. So it's interesting. So terraforming, right, is it's ecosystem sculpting, right? And the idea, old science fiction idea, came out of, you know, can we terraform Mars? Can we make other planets hospitable for human life? And this is ecosystem engineering. And, you know, it was sci-fi for a very long time. And then once we started dealing with global warming and issues like that, we started talking about kind of geoengineering projects, which was essentially terraforming here on Earth, right? And what most people don't realize is we actually started one of those projects. We, the not, you know, very, it's been a theoretical science fiction idea, but in the Everglades, we created the Everglades Restoration Project. It's the largest public works project ever undertaken. And it's literally, they want to rejigger, I mean, the Everglades are the second half of Florida, right? The entire system is dying, and they are reengineering the entire system, right? And so, the you know, it could still be a disaster. And it's certainly, you know, it's a giant multi-decade project um, that's going on. But the, the level of reconstruction is, is insane. Um, and it's, you know, it's the largest public works project ever undertaken. And how go the Everglades? So goes a lot of these other projects in a lot of people's minds. Well, it obviously is an opportunity for us to look at the, you know, the melting ice packs, the other things, the things that we have impacted um, because of CO2 emissions, not in this case, this is obviously being done a different way, for us to find technology to resolve some of those issues. And I think some of them, like the species that are dying off, um, I don't really have an answer. I don't know if many people do. But one of the things that's a big issue for everybody is obviously power and energy. And you speak about nuclear energy, and you, and you it's been discussed for a long time. It obviously it would revolutionize the world, but you speak about Prometheus 2.0, nuclear fission. And in your video trailer, you talk about these guys in France that are about ready to create this star, right? Um, talk to the listeners about where you see energy going and how we're going to harness these various powers without having 
a major impact um, to our environments? Well, I mean, for you know, as I, we looked at it in length and in kind of in abundance, renewables are accelerating exponentially. So you know, ultimately, I think solar um, offers incredible, incredible, incredible opportunities. Um, I, in Tomorrowland, took a look at nuclear power, and specifically what I was focused on is what's called fourth-generation nuclear. And most people, most of, and and this is something I learned in my research, uh, most of us, myself included, when I started looking into nuclear power, our knowledge sort of ends at Three Mile Island. When Three Mile Island melts down, which is generation two reactors, right, the second generation, that's sort of where we stopped paying attention to the technology, but the science did not stop. And what's coming online now, generation four, is literally built to kind of solve all of the nuclear, you know, from waste to weapons proliferation, all the issues that the previous generation said they're built to solve. And I'll, and I'll give you kind of one example um, at, uh, they built a, they built a reactor in Idaho, built based around one of these fourth generation technologies. That they literally duplicated the conditions that created the meltdowns in Chernobyl and uh, through my island. They literally unplugged the reactor from the wall, mm-hmm. <laughs> shut mm-hmm. off, cut off its power supply, um, which has led to those meltdowns, and nothing happens because the way these things are they're constructed that they're passively safe so it doesn't require any human intervention they rely on the laws of physics they just kind of change the physics of the of the way the nuclear reaction goes down so it's you know it is super interesting and nuclear power obviously gives us a lot you know a lot to play with and it does you know as we looked at in abundance if you can solve energy you can start solving a ton of other major problems people face so it's it's kind of the you know a really really basic need and you know having a powerful impact there um, really goes a long way, especially if you're dealing with you know CO2 issues. And I know kind of nuclear is a bad name because of what happened at Fukushima, of course. But the point, and I and I make this in in, in you know, my examination of nuclear power is if Fukushima would have been Generation Four and not Generation Two, we would have had none of these problems. Yep. So it is. I think it is the direction, and I. I I'm certainly hoping we can get there because power and it, renewable resources are are a huge issue. Um, one of the things that you've been known for is uh, the Flow Genome Project, and you and Jamie working on for some time. And just this last year, you mentioned this in the book. Red Bull did, Red Bull did an amazing highest skydive. Actually, I don't think Felix quite made it to the highest. I don't know if it was, but Felix Baumgartner. And he obviously pushed the limits of any human capacity. I watched it along with millions of other people watching him in his little capsule as he extended up or the balloon to make this dive out. Speak with us, if you would, as to how much further do you believe we can push these limits of, you know, the human capacity as it is today i mean it was phenomenal to watch it's crazy and yet on the other hand you have guys like yesterday who some of the two most prominent people died and yosemite uh you know doing uh what do you call it diving off the cliffs there um it's it's crazy what's going on but what do we what do you see kind of in the future because you guys are right in the depths of this um, 
Yeah, first of all, losing Dean was very, very, very sad over yeah, the weekend. Yeah, it um, was crazy sad. I mean, I really... I couldn't believe it when I heard it, but um, it, he and another partner, actually two of them, right? Yeah, um, Matt. Uh, I'm, I'm blanking Matt's last name right now. Yeah. But yeah, that was really sad. Um, but again, you know, and, and Dean, would have, Dean would have actually told you this, uh, the thing that you have to understand is, you know, we're looking at ultimate human performance, right? It's, it's performance where life or limb is on the line, and it is the farthest frontier. And, you know, when in the history of the world has innovation, you know, not produced failure, right? I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's what happens on the way to innovation. And so, you know, the price is very, very steep for pushing kind of human performance out in the way the today's action adventure sport athletes are doing it. But what, what Felix did, um, and somebody's already broken his record afterwards, and I think this is apropos of, you know, Felix did set a record, yeah. and the record Felix set had been set for 50 years, right? Correct. Um, and then somebody, somebody I, I believe last year broke Felix's record. But the, the point I was making, you know, with all of it is, first of all, the, the very fact that like our urge to play has, you know, just left the planet. That, that in and of itself, right? I mean, it's one thing to go to space to explore the moon, or, you know, for science purposes, this is, you know, this is play. It's sport. It's something totally different, and it's a totally different kind of like kinesthetic curiosity and it you know of course it's going to leave the planet as we leave the planet we're going to develop space-based sports that's that's what's coming so you know felix was the first version of that um but it it is you know it is super interesting um That, yeah, that is you know, right. I mean, it, that, yeah. you know, you think, of, you think of, I mean, you think about how much of, you know, still football is the thing everybody watches on TV, right? right. It beats everything else in ratings. Right. And but suddenly, sport just left the planet, and you don't think that's going to shift everything oh, over yeah. the next, you know, century? It's really, you know, it it starts to get really wild and really interesting. And I, you know, I make the point, and I and I'm sort of being facetious, but I'm not really. You know, a tandem skydiving when like 100 people go skydiving at once um, and do formation flying was um, it's incredibly technically difficult and, you know, really kind of cool from a insider perspective. But I don't think anybody outside of the skydiving world, you know, ever really cared so much about it because there's a bunch of people, you know, flying in kind of, you know, pinwheel formations and then pulling their parachutes and it was over, right? Mm-hmm. But suddenly you have, you know, when you've got eight minutes of fall time, ten minutes of fall time, you have space-based opera. And, I mean, like, all kinds of crazy things become really possible. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, you, you, you shift the, you know, talk about theater of the absurd. Yeah. But really, right, at a, yeah. at, a, at a very deep level. Well, and I don't know how many viewers watched that, but I'm, I'm sure it was millions and millions. But such a fascinating thing to watch him dive from, I forget which altitude it was, but... Uh, and then land on Earth safely after that, you know, uh, whole spectacle. It was it was incredible. Now you state in your book, it's about humans how we have the audacity audacity to change uh, nature of reality. It's about humans now have the audacity audacity to join in nature's creative process in their quest for self reinvention. You call it radical self reinvention. What implications do you see for society as a result of our own radical self-reinvention? Because in essence, that's what we've been talking about here, is self-reinvention at its core level. Well, you know, 
there's a lot of different ways to kind of yes you're you're absolutely correct and there's a lot of different ways to come at that and, and you know one of the one of the things i always look at is um i call it the rebel instinct which is kind of each generation's need to kind of out-rebel the previous generation, which has certainly been going on since the 20s. And, you know, clearly, you know, in the 60s, we had long hair and bright clothing um, and drugs. And, you know, 70s and 80s, that started to get into punk rock body modif- body piercing and tattoos. The 90s, it was body modification and a whole lot more tattoos. Now we're starting to see bio implants, right? People are taking technology and hacking it into their body. There, Harper's did, a, did an article a bunch of years ago about a guy who's trying to graft real life kind of angel wings or bird wings onto his back. We're getting to the point that we can start mucking around with this stuff using synthetic biology and synthetic biology, people are developing you know, DNA typewriters so anybody can start to tinker with biology. It opens up this frontier to, to anybody. And for sure this kind of rebel instinct, this kind of punk rock drive is gonna, you know, people are gonna want cat eyes, and you know that we're gonna human-animal hybrids are, are coming next, and it's gonna be a, you know, it'll be a counterculture thing. In the beginning, it'll spread the way that funky haircuts spread or styles of music. So it's it's not. It's, if, if you look at the society right forces like it's already happening, we're already seeing biohackers emerge, and you know the more mainstream version. This is the quantified self movement, but you know this it's it's not. It comes from angles you don't you don't expect, and um, you know what what it really means, and where it gets really really interesting is. It just opens up the, the kind of the human possibility space gets really, really wide, really, really fast. Mm-hmm. A lot, of, right? And sort of what Stuart Kaufman, biologist Stuart Kaufman, called the adjacent possible, you know, becomes a very, very, very large space. And it gets, you know, it gets super interesting. This is probably going to be the century we leave the planet, right? Our, you know, because of what's going on in asteroid mining and the the kind of the great, you know, resource quest in, in, in the heavens that, that's coming. Um, also something we looked at in Tomorrowland, um, we're going to have an economic impetus, impetus to, you know, go into space and the technologies in 3D printing and such to kind of start building real-life space stations and terraforming Mars and missions to Mars and all that stuff is coming, right? So everything that we thought of as, kind of, you know, life on this planet is over because we're going to stop being a one-planet species. So we're going to be fracturing the species. We're going to be leaving the planet. It's a very interesting doorstep that we're now sitting on. Well, you certainly opened my eyes today about Tomorrowland. And as for my listeners, uh, there'll be links to Stephen's website. Uh, there'll be links to Amazon for the purchase of the book. Obviously, there's a trailer. There'll be a link to the trailer as well, which I encourage everybody to watch. It is really a very well-done trailer and, and quite intriguing. So if you're thinking at all about purchasing Stephen's book, uh, that trailer should help you. This has been a wonderful interview, Stephen, about Tomorrowland, our journey from science fiction to science fact. Um, you did your homework. All of these essays are, are quite intriguing, providing the reader with um, new, not only just information, but a deep dive into examples of people that are actually changing the way um, that the world will get shaped into the future through this technology, intersection of technology, and as you say, even spirituality. Thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth and spending a few minutes with us to impart your wisdom. Thanks, Greg. I much appreciate it.